And let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit, open our eyes to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Open our eyes to the reality of your deep, deep love for us in the details of our lives. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. And good morning. My name is Pete Mayberry. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the pastor of shepherding and administration, two things that go hand in glove. And uh, the last three weeks, we have soaked in Mark's telling of the feeding of the 5,000. We've looked at the crowds and their longings. We've looked at the disciples and their struggle with being overwhelmed. And last week, we looked at the actual bread and the fish that Jesus used to feed those 5,000, probably many more than 5,000. In all likelihood, it was 15 to 20,000 when you count everybody. But today, we want to look through the lens of a different gospel writer at the same event. We're going, we're going here because John is the only one who observes where the bread and fish came from. So he brings our attention, albeit briefly, to the young boy who shares the food. But additionally, his narrative invites us to explore how we wrestle with problem solving and our expectancy relative to God, are you at work or not, in our challenges. So if you haven't already, turn to John 6. John 6, 1. So sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs that he had performed by healing the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountainside and he sat down with his disciples and the Jewish Passover festival was near. So the setting actually matters here and we have to remember what's going on. Jesus led the disciples off to this deserted place because his cousin had just been killed by Herod. He'd just been murdered. So Jesus' cousin whom he grew up around and knew and loved and was a fellow laborer and just died. And the disciples had just completed their first short-term missions trip. And they were just plum excited about everything that had gone on. So you've got Jesus here in one space who's grieving and reflective. And the disciples are probably tired, but they're also elated that God could use their lives. So that's the setting where we get everybody alone here. And the problem is they're not alone. John calls it a great crowd. Undoubtedly, some of that crowd followed the disciples from that first mission trip after they saw the healings, the deliverances, they heard the proclamation of the kingdom. Others are there because they heard that a wonder-working prophet has appeared among them. As John observed, the people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. During this time in the ancient Near East, Wonder-working prophets actually pretty often drew crowds of hopeful people longing for the possibility of healing. Now for others, they may have been there with that hope of the redemption from the oppression of the hated Romans. And it might be lifting because maybe the Messiah is coming. We're coming up on Passover. And friends, you know what? We are really no different. Humans run toward perceived solutions for their troubles. Pastor Ken said that last week. Politics and product marketing 
are constantly bombarding us with solutions to our problems. Then and now, we all run along the shore to find hope in our hardship. So continuing in verse 5, when Jesus looked up, he saw a great crowd coming toward him. He said to Philip, Philip, where are we going to buy bread for all these people to eat? The dreaded question. The calling back to the hard reality of the moment happened. Jesus wasn't the only one who was watching the people come and come and come and keep coming. Surely all of the disciples, in the midst of their tiredness, had already thought that very thing. But they, they wanted to process what had just happened on their trip. They had questions. They had seen people healed from their ministry. They talked about the kingdom and people had actually listened to them talking about the kingdom. How many of you have had that experience recently? Where people actually listen to you talk about Jesus, right? There was so much bubbling in their hearts to speak with Jesus about. But here, all these people, probably 11 of the disciples breathed this <sighs> relief when the teacher called on Philip to answer the pop quiz. Nobody else raised their hands, right? We don't see anybody else going, oh, I, I know, I know, I know. Verse 6. Jesus asked this only to test him. For he already had in mind what he was going to do. Great. He's just testing me. I love to be tested, don't you? It's a familiar concept in Scripture, actually. The word can trip us up, though, because... When God is testing us, it's to strengthen our trust and confidence in him. Just like somebody might push themselves really hard in a workout. My, son, my eldest son does this to see the limits of his physical strength when he's lifting. I look at one side of the bar he's lifting and I go, I don't want to lift that. Much less that. Right? People test themselves. Testing is different than temptation. Right? The goal of temptation is to lead us into disobedience. God never, tempt, never does that. He doesn't tempt us. So Deuteronomy 8, we actually see a picture of this testing. And it's important for us to get our heads around this because this could easily be us. The Lord used 40 years of reliance on manna in the middle of the wilderness as a very long test of trust building in the people of God. His goal was then that the Israelites would learn man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus quotes that. So much here is available for us that parallels the place that the disciples find themselves and that you might find yourself. I do. Listen again to the description of the circumstances in Deuteronomy 8. It was the Lord your God who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water who brought you out water from the flinting rock. He fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers didn't know. Why? 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 that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. I don't like tests, 
But I do like the idea that God can bring good in the end. The Israelites were at great risk. Trackless desert, wilderness, snakes and scorpions, lack of water. And maybe this describes your own life right now. Or your life recently. Are you walking in a time when the path ahead is unmarked? You really don't know what you're going to do. Or do you have physical maladies that seem to have no answer, but they relentlessly keep attacking you? Are you longing for relational restoration or hungering for God's real power to show up? And you're wondering, does that even happen anymore? Take a moment, bring to mind one of the challenges that you face. It's probably right on the surface. What do we do when we're confronted with these challenges? Many are overwhelmed by the troubles they face. Pastor Aaron shared that two weeks ago. Why is it so true? We just need to look at us as humans. Adults have lots of experience in dealing with problems. Job observed, we're born to trouble as sparks fly up out of a fire. We get lots of practice dealing with trouble. Trouble, aggravations, problems, needs, disasters, they're all over the place. This world is filled with them, and so we have a lot of experience. And so we have practices, right? We start by looking and analyzing the nature and the scope of the challenge, and we compare that to our resources. Sadly, they're not usually enough to deal with the problem. We focus on solutions that tend towards what we can touch, what we can handle, what we can feel, what we can control. Because solutions actually need to do something. They don't need to be fanciful imagination. We want to supply real and helpful answers. So we're used to trying to do that. We also experience failure. Our best ideas are not always met with glowing success. And we hate failure. When it happens, we begin to question our capacity to be helpful. Worse, we also don't want to look foolish because we were wrong. We struggle with pride. And then we just have those times when we actually are trying to lean in well. We're working hard to trust God for something significant. We don't see that outcome that we've prayed for. All of us have stories around this. Right now, our family is trusting Jesus for the healing of our young granddaughter's cancer. Um, it is really hard for us to see this 15-year-old literally just battered and weakened by the chemo treatments that are working to destroy the cancer. We saw her yesterday, a shadow of herself from four months ago. And it just hurts. And we all have those. We all have those stories. It hurts our hearts. But as a family, we are persistently, we are shamelessly, we are asking Jesus for miraculous healing. Many of you are praying with us, and I cannot tell you how deeply grateful we are and how we feel held by you. But I will be honest, in my own lifetime, seeing the miraculous healing work of God or the miraculous in other areas has been limited. Not non-existent. But it is limited. And so trusting God in the midst of all this battle, it's hard for me, it's hard for us. 
So growing our faith in God can actually get harder and harder the more we live and the more we experience life. Having confidence that God will do something is difficult for us to hold on to. The miraculous answer often can feel more like a blessing for the first century than for our 21st century. So then we begin to fear that our hope for God's intervention is ill-placed or fear that it just won't happen. And fear is a terrible companion for any journey. So here we see Philip. He's called on in this test by Jesus. What does he say? It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have even a bite. What do you hear? What do you hear in that? Pragmatism, overwhelm, helpless and hopeless. We can hear all of that in Philip's response. It's an economic, stinking disaster. And as Pastor Aaron said it the other day, is it actually worth it? We could spend all that money right now And we need to do the same thing again tomorrow. It's really important for us to understand what Philip has, however, just walked through. Right? Just in the Gospel of John, we know these things. He saw water turned into wine. Maybe 60 some odd gallons. I don't know. These are huge things. A A lot of wine. Healing the official's son from a distance in Galilee. Healing the paralytic of 38 years who was lying by the pool in Bethesda in Jerusalem. And that's just from this Gospel of John. We know there's so much more in the other synoptics. He saw so much more of God's great power on his own first mission trip, right? Healings. He proclaimed the Gospel and people listened, which was astounding. Satan falling from heaven as demons were cast out. But does any of that figure into his response? Does it figure into our responses? Friends, experience and faith leaks for every one of us. We're built like a sieve, just leaks, blows out. He is not seeing the problem through the lens of God's ability to work through Jesus and to do above and beyond all that we can imagine. He is standing alone on the side of a hill, and all the weight of this problem is just sitting on him to solve. Ever felt like that for yourself? I'm alone, and I'm standing here. Carol and I do a lot of marriage mentoring, and we regularly talk about problem solving with couples. Problems usually generate because there's been an argument, and something's not right. right? So we're, we're actually starting with people wrestling with things, right? How we look at problems matters, especially when we're with others. And they can be coworkers or roommates or friends, siblings or spouses. So I want you to just take a minute. I want you to picture Philip in this context on the hillside. He's standing there. He's watching streams of people coming from all directions. Where are his eyes going? What is he looking at? He's seen the crowds. He's seen the disciples. Is he looking at Jesus? Is he looking at the stones under his feet and kicking them? My money's on, he's looking at the ground. And he's kicking the stones. Why? He feels alone. 
And when we're alone, we just sort of hunker down in. So where do your eyes go when you start to problem solve? Say it's with a team member or a friend or a spouse. How we describe it is this when we're working with people. If we're sitting at a table or sitting across the room, and I did a lot of this early in our marriage. I'd sit on one side of the living room, Carol would sit on the other. And then you're looking at the other, and there's the problem. So you're actually looking through the problem at the other person. Guess what? They get distorted. Because the problem is distorting who they are. All you're seeing is the problem, then everybody outside of that is just a mess. So we actually physically encourage one another to literally sit on the couch. There are times when we need to have a conversation, we don't use our chairs, we sit on the couch. Shoulder to shoulder, we put the problem out in front of us, and we're a team working at that. Phillips kicking the dirt, because he's feeling pretty alone. He doesn't have a team. Whether that's the other disciples, or it's Jesus, he doesn't have one. Where are you? Because you're all holding a problem in your head in the moment. Who are you with? Continuing to verse 8. So then one of his friends, Andrew, he steps up finally, said, okay, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Andrew is no more confident than Philip. Not at all. Again, it's this calculated consideration of what's possible with what I can put my eyes on and what I can touch and what I can feel. Andrew knew that three loaves would feed an adult. And the loaves that we have, that we serve communion from, that's about what we're talking about. That was a typical loaf of bread in this day. Three of those could feed an adult for a day, right? We put four on our little trays. We try to feed 300, but we're not trying to feed you everything you need, so there is a difference there. This is exactly like Elisha's servant in the Old Testament passage, right? There were 20 loaves of bread, but there were 100 people. If they needed three each, that's 300. And I got 20. How can I set this before 100? You hear the shame, the embarrassment, the scene of only what is physical. And he had been with Elisha. And he had seen the miraculous already many times before. He provided water in the desert for whole armies. He raised the dead. He provided oil for families. He healed springs of water. He took poison out of stew. Those were Elisha's things. And the servant had seen that. But again, where are his eyes focused? on the pragmatic, on the physical, only what he could see. It wasn't through all of that to the God who stands above it. But their posture is not the child's, is it? We hardly know anything about this young person, except that he's brought forward by Andrew with his few loaves and his fish. But it's such a different expectancy. Think about the children you know for a minute. What do they do when they are confronted with a problem? Where do they look? Where do their eyes go? Now, I'm not talking about a problem like they just got in trouble, right? (laughs) And they hear their name. We know what their eyes do then. All right, and their bodies. No, I'm talking about when they 
genuinely need help. When they proclaim, I'm thirsty or I'm hungry or I'm in pain or I'm afraid, where are their eyes? My experience is that their eyes lock on the parent or the trusted teacher or the caregiver, right? Their eyes lock on another. Where our eyes look speaks volumes about our hope and our confidence, our sense that we are not alone. We don't have to be self-sufficient. But we learn something different as we age, don't we? All too often we sense that, well, you are on your own and there's nobody else that you can turn to. And that needs to be unlearned in the kingdom. Hence, Jesus' question to Philip. How will we feed all these people? He wasn't trying to rag on him. He's trying to open his eyes. Tests. Open our eyes to something. They're an invitation. He was welcoming Philip into a glorious understanding of the power of God. Jesus wants Philip to understand that when we bring our problems and our challenges to God, the solutions are no longer limited to what we can see and what we can touch. There's more. The gospel invites us to understand that we are not just physical beings. As we trust Jesus for our salvation, we're transferred into a brand new kingdom, one whose head, man God, is the Lord Jesus Christ where the limitations of the world that we have learned to see as permanent and inevitable, we realize are actually not ultimate at all. They are not. This is the unlearning we are invited into. But that doesn't happen while our eyes remain fixed on the problem and turned away from Christ. So as Hebrews exhorts us, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And truly, Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross, that is the supreme picture of kingdom-oriented trust in God. As Christ went to the cross, everybody, the disciples, the Romans, the Jewish leaders, even Satan assumed that Jesus had lost. His life given up in death, ended his mission, finished his influence, And eventually he would just be lost in the dusts of time. But all of that thinking was wrong. Jesus had a clear bead on what God the Father was accomplishing, and he held that hope all the way through the test to his death. He did not let it go. God was faithful to his promised work. Jesus had just spoken a week earlier in John 12, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So the Father took Jesus' offering of his one life and he multiplied it to bring life for everyone who would believe. Instead of being forgotten and his message lost, God changed the world forever through his death. And friends, this is gospel problem solving. We are invited to trust God in a very similar way as we walk through our own challenges and problems. Jesus was not alone. Jesus was not forgotten in the grave. We are not alone. We are not forgotten. And as we make a decision to lift our eyes up to God, to look in the eyes of our Savior, 
in the midst of our pain and our frustration and our fear and our disaster or our overwhelm, we find the Father, the Son, and the Spirit looking lovingly and powerfully back to us, ready to walk us forward into their kingdom of life. I want that. I know I have another problem, and that is that I tend to think the resources of my investing, are they going to be worth it? Right? We are trained to look for a return on investment. <laughs> and that actually is a challenge. But think about Jesus. Could he have said, I don't think these people are worth it, and walked and chosen something different? Could he have thought differently about his obedience? Yes, he could. Can I? Yes, I can. Think about the child. When he came up with five loaves and two fish, he was aware of the crowd, right? He came with them. And he knew how much he liked to eat every day, but he wasn't worried about today's meal. And he wasn't worried about the future of food and riches that he might have he was looking at Jesus. His eyes stepped there. And because his eyes were fixed on Jesus, he was able to trust and walk and hand that two way. We are invited to trust Jesus in a very similar, non strategic way. Because we have the example of Christ, so many others but also this clear encouragement from Isaiah 55 where our father said, friends, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts and your thoughts. We have a God who can think so much more broadly than we do. He invites us to trust him. We will never, on this side of eternity, be able to fathom how many different ways the Lord can step into our challenges and help us experience his power and wisdom. We just can't. We can't imagine them all. The cross alone gives us this understanding. God's solution for life coming into the world is not one I would have ever imagined. The death of his son. I'd still be on the hillside kicking dirt with Philip and just thinking about what could I do. But when we look at Jesus, when we lift our eyes up off the problem and we fix them on our Savior, we can offer our lives, our gifts, our talents, our energy, our intellect, our emotions, our hearts to God. And we can respond positively to the call of His Spirit. Then we too can trust that our gift given to God will not impoverish us. We can trust that our little is not insufficient for his purposes to be fulfilled. And we can trust that he will take our offering for the life of the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, every one of us walks through challenge. And you invite every one of us to lift up our eyes 
and look at our Savior who on the cross as his life ebbed away looked with love on the ones whose lives were going to be changed forever because of his death. And I ask you, Holy Spirit, for my friends here, that as they are wrestling with the challenges that they are holding on to right now, that you would lift their eyes up to look at the Savior, to look at the cross, and to hope again in the reality, resurrection life, of the power of God, of God our Father doing things that are outside of the physical normal, bringing life. Help us to believe, help us to cling to you, Lord Jesus. Help us to confidently state, you are our God, and we trust you.